This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, biographer Jacqueline Kent joined me to talk about the life of courageous suffragist, political candidate and social reformer of the 20th century, Vida Goldstein. Jacqueline's new book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time, is out through Penguin. Then, finally, one of the world's most cited forest ecologists, Professor David Lindenmeyer from the ANU Fenner School joined me to discuss his new research on the Central Highlands. It shows the direct effects that fire and logging are having on these forests, substantially reducing the number of hollow-bearing trees that threatened and critically endangered Australian mammals can use as homes. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's great to be with you this Tuesday morning, as I usually am, between 9am and noon. And it's also great to be talking federal politics, which, as you can tell from our previous subscribers, it is an important thing for a, a lot of people who tune into Triple R to hear about politics, to know what's going on in our country, but also across the world. And we're going to be focusing inward today um, in the first hour and we're going to be talking federal politics and um, we're going to be doing that with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And Ben joins me now. Hi there, Ben. How are you? Good morning, Amy. How are you, mate? I'm going pretty well. Yeah, I'm I'm managing and it was kind of nice to see some sunshine yesterday. So you've got to kind of grab on, grab on to the really small but kind of nice things don't you absolutely uh, the sunshine on sunday yesterday was beautiful so mm. yeah, you do have to hold on to the little things and only five cases yesterday is a very positive development as well yeah so many people were shocked to think you know it's very hard to remember the last time we were in single digits and it apparently was in june so <laughs> that's how long we've yeah, been there you go this. so yeah it is a bit a bit yeah. crazy um, and we did see just uh, previously in the last few minutes um, that we have 10 cases here in Victoria today. So it's um, likely to fluctuate, of course, as we've seen across this experience. But maybe we'll jump in to Premier yeah. Daniel Andrews on Sunday. Um, it's become, you know, a little bit of a feature, really, of a range of Sundays that we have our, our Sunday press conference. Um, and also that... There is, um, I guess, some controversy. Maybe we'll touch on the controversy first, which is that Jenny Makarkos, who was the health minister, has resigned. She did so just before the press conference on Saturday, um, the just regular update press conference. And uh, it was really interesting to read her statement, which pretty much um, called out and suggested that the Premier, in his evidence, um, had thrown her under the bus, or that's how it kind of came across in that statement, um, and that she would no longer be able to serve in his Cabinet, given those kind of key disagreements around um, whether the Department of Health and Human Services was solely responsible for hotel quarantine or whether it was a combined um, responsibility. And there are a lot of detail um, in that in this issue and the evidence that uh, Makarkos gave on the Thursday and then the Premier gave on the Friday. We probably won't get into that, but let's just touch on the kind of key 
um, announcement key changes, which is that uh, Makarkos is now out and she's leaving the parliament and we have a new health minister, Minister Foley. Yeah, that's right, Amy. So a couple of things going on at once here. The first is that Melbourne is getting on top of the coronavirus second wave. So that's very positive from a health perspective. And the other thing that's happening in politics is that the uh, commission of inquiry into the quarantine failings, which were the cause of the second wave, you know, and a, and a devastating uh, outbreak, let's remember, you know, more than 700 deaths. Um, that's now winding its way to its conclusion. And it finished at a crescendo last week with evidence from the Premier, Dan Andrews, and also from the former, now former Health Minister, Jenny Makarkos. So Makarkos has now resigned. It's become very clear that the failure in quarantine was the result of a cascade of decisions, really. Um, it wasn't, I think, completely Makarkos's fault, but it's also the case that she was the health minister. So I think there's a bit of welcome accountability here. I don't think uh, we anyone could deny that the you know the health minister ultimately must take a lot of responsibility for what happened. Uh, there are a bunch of decisions that fed into the quarantine failure. Probably the biggest one was that Victoria Police didn't want to do it. They didn't mm. want to look after the, the people in the hotel. Um, and so when they decided they didn't want to do it, the decision got handballed around the various bureaucrats inside the Victorian government. And without anyone formally making a decision, it seemed, they just sort of naturally gravitated towards getting security cards to do it. Um, but underlying that, I think, is a failure, a bigger failure, a systemic failure. And there's a very good article by Margaret Simons in The Guardian today unpacking some of the systemic failures within the Victorian Health and uh, Housing Department. It's a very big, very unwieldy government department, which now seems to have had uh, a number of failures during the pandemic, not just around quarantine, but also the ham-fisted response uh, in some of the Housing Commission towers, um, the centralised contact tracing effort, which has fallen short of the performance of contact tracing in other states. Uh, so you can see, uh, I think in general, a bit of a bureaucratic failure here within health and housing. Makarkos has fallen on her sword. She's quite clearly been hung out to dry by Dan Andrews and her cabinet colleagues. So she does depart with rancour and bitterness. Uh, and Martin Foley is the new health minister. So that's something of a hospital pass. That will be a very difficult job indeed for him. Uh, but he's an experienced minister and he's also the housing minister. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes in that role. Well, he has been the Minister for Mental Health and also um, the Creative Arts or Creative Industries. So um, he has been in a very prominent public-facing role in those two key areas, of course, because Victoria um, has had a very important Royal Commission into um, mental health as well. So uh, I think that's interesting um, in terms of that appointment. Ben, in terms of the announcements that the Premier made on Sunday, there are some key changes. Um, a lot of people, well, the Premier used this um, this announcement to say, look, we're actually ahead of schedule, we're doing better than we expected, so there are a few more rules that can be um, slightly relaxed and we're also bringing back 27,000 additional workers, so 127,000 as of yesterday um, will be allowed to return to their workplaces and some of those key industries were um, in areas like manufacturing and logistics. 
But um, some of the other kind of key changes that I found interesting um, and that we might want to pick up on was the fact that face masks now have to be face masks. They have to be fitted, covering the nose and the mouth. They can't be a bandana or a scarf or a face shield. Um, and I've got to say, I have seen a number of people using those options or not even wearing their mask yeah. properly at all <laughs> or yes. just having it under their chin. The face been... shield I find particularly amusing. It's essentially it? just a visor, isn't it, really? Yeah, <laughs> that you spit into and it kind of just, yeah, it does absolutely nothing for the person or people around them. Um, but it's interesting to see that that is um, we're finally kind of tightening down on on mask rules. But also the other area that I saw that was interesting was um, in particular the increase of fines for Victoria Police um, in terms of the gatherings that people can hold. And of course, you can um, in metropolitan Melbourne have a gathering outdoors, and the rules are changing slightly for that. Um, so there are some interesting changes, some slight, um, you know, opening up a little bit. And we're also seeing um, primary schools return um, in mid-October. So what are your thoughts on these kind of changes? Because one of the things that is very relevant and pertinent to federal politics is the fact that the, pre the Prime Minister and Treasurer um, have been making comments through media releases suggesting that um, Victoria, now that it's down to single digits or now um, around five to ten, should be doing what New South Wales is doing and opening up more. So what are your thoughts on that, this kind of constant um, back and forth around uh, the Premier's and the health team's decision, because it ultimately is guided by evidence and, um, and health practitioners and then between the, the federal um, liberal coalition government. Yeah, I think it's very concerning that once again, the Morrison government's playing politics with the epidemic. Uh, you know, um, yes, it's true that New South Wales has a slightly more open economy than Victoria, but New South Wales is not coming back from a really serious second wave outbreak. So, um, I would have thought that the public health settings in Victoria would be appropriate. I mean, you know, we're talking about public health settings that have returned Victoria to a manageable situation from a very, very serious, uh, you know, 700 cases on the worst day. Um, so I think, you know, this is just more of what we've seen from the Morrison government, particularly over the last month or so, where they've really put away any pretense of we're all in this together and they've been sniping uh, pretty viciously, actually, from the sidelines at Andrews and, indeed, Anastasia Palaszczuk, the Queensland Premier, who faces a hard-fought election in just a month's time up there in Queensland. Um, and, you know, in the meantime, of course, uh, Frydenberg has cut job seeker and job keeper for Victorians, despite the fact that, you know, the economy here is in much worse shape than in New South Wales. Uh, so, you know, I think... It's, it shows really that the National Cabinet idea is, is one that is, I think, pretty much run its course and that any semblance of the idea that we're, you know, we're going to have a national approach to the pandemic has now been eroded by this constant politicking, particularly from Morrison. Mm. And it's interesting because um, they got rid of COAG because the National Cabinet was functioning so well that it was going to be a great replacement. So um, it's interesting to see that. And one other thing it's worth mentioning because um, we have seen Jenny McCarkos 
uh, resign. We have not seen the federal uh, aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, resign. And, no, we um, haven't. <laughs> we, we are still seeing daily deaths from aged care outbreaks that the federal government is responsible for regulating. Um, we've seen seven deaths today. Um, amongst those, and then, of course, the 10 new cases. So we are still seeing ongoing deaths. There are a number of active cases still in aged care, and um, it's shocking to see, and we've just seen um, a, a report just released about the aged care reg regulator showing that over 2,000 complaints were filed in just three months, but that led to no fines or warnings from the Morrison government's aged care regulator. So, I mean, it is, I guess, shocking and damning to hear that kind of thing, the fact that even during um, this period where so much has gone wrong, there's really been no follow-up by the regulator in that formal sense. No, it's been a shocking failure by the aged care safety regulator. Um, and I am astonished that Richard Colbeck still holds his commission in the Morrison government. But, you know, that's of a piece with, with the way we know Scott Morrison operates. Everything is viewed from a political lens. It's all about the politics. Uh, and so losing a federal minister would look like, uh, you know, accepting some of the blame. And, of course, Morrison has been assiduous in trying to blame everything on Andrews and the Victorian Labor government and to absolve his federal government of any responsibility. That won't wash. Uh, no one really believes that. Uh, aged care is a federal responsibility. And Colbeck, I believe, needs to go. Uh, but, you know, politics is a dirty game and it's not always played by the rules, particularly by the Morrison government. So I, I expect that he'll continue to be protected. Mm. And one other interesting um, kind of movement or slated movement but hasn't happened yet was that um, Labor's Joel Fitzgibbon has threatened to quit shadow cabinet over the emissions target um, of the Labor Party. There is an ongoing um, dispute and tension about Labor's focus on climate change and energy policy. And, um, and it's even meant that uh, people like Claire O'Neill has suggested that in terms of um, the recovery and the focus of Labor in opposition should be around small business and entrepreneurialism and innovation. And we should, um, this is a, a reportedly what she said that we should, or Labor should be um, moving away from focusing on climate change and actually focus their attention on those um, economic issues. Uh, so it's interesting to see that even now we're having slightly more public areas of dissent within the Labor Party, which, of course, is not bad in and of itself. But Joel Fitzgibbon has very regularly been pro-coal, quite outspoken about fossil fuels, and really has been one of the dissenting voices in the Labor Party. Yeah, that's right. Fitzgibbon's been a constant thorn in the side of the la the left in the Labor Party, uh, really since the 2019 election um, and going back further than that too. He, of course, represents an electorate in the Hunter Valley that has a lot of coal mining jobs in it. Uh, and so to some degree, he's speaking up for his constituents. But I think it's also a proxy for, as you rightly point out, a wider debate within Labor about just what it's going to do about some of these issues. I mean, you know, once again, you know, it's Labor wedging itself really because uh, there is no debate over the economic issues in relation to climate change. Uh, 
climate change will be so much worse for the economy than any kind of action to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, so the fact that Labor is still having this debate as though there's some kind of opposition between the economy and the environment, I think shows uh, once again, that yeah, as we've talked about a few times on this show, Labor is still licking its wounds from last year, navel-gazing, working out what it stands for. Uh, and that's unfortunate because we need a strong opposition at this time. Uh, there's a very serious pandemic facing the country and climate change is not going away, quite obviously. Mm. Uh, so, you know, Labor does need to get its act together. Uh Will Labor get its act together? Well, those of us who've observed Labor over the last decade will not be too confident in that respect. Yeah. And Ben, on a very related note, um, the United Nations held a summit on biodiversity, which is being hosted virtually from New York. And we did see uh, Scott Morrison make a contribution to um, this this topic at the UN um, via video. And it was noted that Australia was one of the countries that refused to sign a global pledge endorsed by 64 other countries, committing them to reverse biodiversity loss. And the rationale was apparently because it was inconsistent with Australia's policies um, which also probably says it all. Um, apart from Australia, the other countries that didn't sign this pledge, which had 10 points to it, uh, was the United States, Brazil, China, Russia and India. And one of those key points, or a couple of them, um, were focused on greenhouse gas pollution and reaching net zero emissions by 2050. So if, if a pledge like this, which, to be honest, seems like it's a no-brainer, um, is not consistent with Australia's policies, what does that say about our policies? Well, um, in one respect, um, of course, he's right. <laughs> it is government <laughs> policy to water down the biodiversity uh, regulations. In fact, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the government's in the process of watering down the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act at the moment. So uh, maybe Morrison's just simply telling the truth here for a change. Um, but of course, you know, in the wider scheme of things, it's outrageous. Uh, Australia's biodiversity loss is one of the worst in the world. You know, our extinction record is shameful. Um, so the fact that we wouldn't sign up to a treaty to try and protect what's left of our biodiversity, I think, just shows where the Morrison government's priorities are. Yeah. And Ben, in terms of um, one major looming issue in federal politics, we're having a federal budget that's delivered quite a number of months past its usual delivery date. We usually talk about this in May, um, and that is the kind of main time that we see uh, a budget delivered. But we are actually now going to see the federal government um, release its budget, deliver the budget on the 6th of October, and uh, there's obviously, as with every federal budget, a lot of speculation about what's going to happen. Um, but one of the points that a number of economists have made, even some of those that are, you know, traditionally um, quite conservative, have been that really um, they would prefer stimulation of um, of the economy and really increasing um, payments to those who are doing poorly at the moment, those who need support from the government, instead of the tax cuts that are due to um, also be coming through in this budget. Um, it's obvious that 
the government doesn't have any plans to um, stop or wind back the next round of tax cuts that they had in mind that we've already discussed before. But what does this budget what does this budget mean? Is this an important, um, I guess, document for where we're going to next, given that we are in a recession? And has the government indicated what might be one of the, the key areas um, that we should be looking out for? It's an incredibly important statement, Amy, uh, because it will set the economic agenda for the next, next well, six months at least, but probably for the next year, really. Um, and, of course, we are in a deep recession and we need the federal government to step up and to continue economic stimulus. And I'm really worried about this budget next week because it seems like from all the indications that Frydenberg is going to bring forward the tax cuts, which probably won't do much stimulus because they'll mostly be directed at very rich people, um, and he's not going to spend enough money. He's going to wind back uh, some of the stimulus payments. Well, he's already winding back JobKeeper and JobSeeker, for example. Um, so if you take those two together, what we're likely to get is an economic response, a policy response that's not enough to drag us out of this recession. And that sets the scene for really the next year, perhaps longer, of grinding austerity. Remember that austerity is cutting government spending or winding back government stimulus in a downturn. And that seems to be what Frydenberg is gearing up for. That's really worrying for me. Uh, in fact, the other day he said that he'd be happy with unemployment at 6%. Well, you know, that's not good enough, I don't think. Unemployment really needs to be as low as possible. And I don't think anyone would consider 6 to 6% 6 to be an acceptable goal for unemployment in the long term. Um, but he's not even going to get to 6% uh, if he doesn't keep the stimulus up. So um, the Reserve Bank thinks it will be 7% at the end of 2021. You know, that's a lot of economic pain over the coming 15 months. Uh, so I think it's a very important statement and it really will set the scene for, yeah, the next year of Australia's economic outlook. Mm. And Ben, just finally, uh, it is important to note that um, Susan Ryan passed away over the weekend and she was a very important figure in Australian politics, um, particularly for women's rights, but also for those um, who are in their older years. And she was, at the end of her life, the um, federal uh, age discrimination commissioner. But prior to that, she was actually the first um, female Labor minister in a federal cabinet. She had the portfolio of education and youth affairs, and she also played a really critical role in bringing us legislation that is still in effect right now, which is the Sex Discrimination Act. And I think um, a lot of people were paying tribute to Susan over the weekend, and rightly so. Um, what were your thoughts on the, the way that Susan's been remembered and um, her significance in Australian politics? Yeah, one of the greats, really, um, certainly of Labor politics and, and arguably of Australian politics. Uh, you know, I think there's been a little bit of criticism in recent times of the Hawke-Keating years and of the the record uh, of the Hawke government uh, in terms of things like um, deregulating the economy and things like that. But it's also worth remembering that the Hawke ministry contains some major figures in Australian politics and Susan Ryan is, I think, rightly being remembered as one of the greats, one of the giants. Uh, her role in rolling back uh, Australia's fiercely protective patriarchy, uh, I think, uh, was 
uh, in many respects, almost second to none. You know, so she got important legislative successes through the parliament uh, that removed some of the terrible gender discrimination that uh, that women faced, uh, particularly uh, in the the nineteen eighties. Um, and then she played a very progressive role in the Hawke government throughout. Um, you know, I was just reminded this morning, for example, that she turned up to Monash University in 1990 uh, for a conference on Australian literature. It's, it's almost yeah. impossible to imagine a, a minister in the current environment turning up to a university and participating in a, in a conference on Australian literature. I mean, these are, the, the current government is opposed, <laughs> you'd have mm. to say, to both uh, universities and to Australian arts and culture. Um, so she was a very progressive person. And then, of course, her career after leaving government was also, I think, really important, particularly the role that she played in civil society, advocating uh, for gender equality, um, and then later advocating for age equality and, and her role as uh, age discrimination commissioner. So Vale Susan Ryan, one mm. of the really important politicians of the last generation. Yeah, yeah. It was very sad to um, have another great woman who have she's really been so instrumental for gender equality. And um, speaking as someone who's worked in that area myself for a long time, she's been completely um, widely regarded and respected for so long, and uh, also was just a great human being. So it was really sad to hear. And um, thinking of everyone who did know Susan personally and, of course, her family as well. Um, Ben, thanks so much for chatting with us today about federal politics and uh, hope you do well this week and that we keep seeing the numbers go down and hopefully get some more optimism. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, you take care too, mate. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And we're going to be speaking with Jacqueline Kent now. She's a biographer and um, this book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time, is out through Viking, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. And I welcome Jacqueline now. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Amy. It's lovely to be here. Oh, I'm just so um, great, grateful to, to get to talk with you about a, a topic and a person that I'm so um, impressed by. And uh, she has so much personality and passion and conviction as well. So it's um, really, you know, not hard to to start to empathise and uh, fall in love with the brilliance of Vida Goldstein. Um, oh, but I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm so glad you feel like that because she's been, um, she's actually been in several books before now. I mean, she's, she because she was the first woman in the Western world to put a hand up to stand for a national parliament. She wasn't the only one to stand. 1903, this was, in Victoria. But, I mean, she's kind of been embalmed in a funny way because she's one of these women who did something first. And that's all people know about her. So it was an absolute Mm. delight for me to kind of get into her a bit, read her speeches, read what she wrote, see how funny she was, see how warm and friendly and terrific she was. So, yes, I'm really glad you feel that way because, um, yeah, so do I. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, well, I, I was really lucky to um, encounter some of the primary documents about her when I was writing a lecture, a Senate occasional lecture, um, a year and a half ago, and we were talking about women in federal politics and the first women who um, actually got elected to federal politics, which was only in 1943. So I was, you know, quite shocked about how late that was and then was interested in all those women who came before Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangney. And, of course, Vida definitely comes up, as you say, because of her real significance in history. But also there were so many other women, I guess lesser-known women as well, who... Mm did put their hand up in that first 1903 election, um, which you also do talk about in the book as well um, briefly and and show, the I guess, the context um, that Vida was working in when she put her hand up. And um, I wanted to start off this conversation with her formative years because I think um, it's similar to what we always see, which is you kind of hear about, like you've said, a, a kind of embalmed um, famous person and you just think, oh, well, um, they were they came out a fully formed human being when they mm. ran for uh, parliament in 1903. But in fact, there was so many different major, you know, life events and developments in Vida's life that has been instrumental clearly in actually getting her to that point. So um, maybe we can start by talking about her mother and father, which seemed to be really important figures in her life for different reasons. Yes, that's terrific. It's, uh, well, you know, being a biographer, biographers are always terribly interested in where people started out from and, you know, childhood influences and tracing threads through people's lives. But in Vida's case, I think you're absolutely right. Her, her mother, Isabella, and her father, Jacob, were both rebellious people in their way. Um, Isabella was a daughter of the Western District and she and Jacob met in Portland. Jacob was nothing like as aristocratic, in, in quotes, as Isabella was. Jacob was an Irishman from, I was born, I think, in Belfast. And his name, he did have a Jewish background, which Goldstein would tell you. But he escaped from his family when he was about 19, got on a ship, came to Australia, ended up in Portland and met Isabella and she was desperate to get away from her own family because though there was money and she had a very comfortable life, she really wanted to do more with her life. And also there were real family problems, which I go into a bit in the book, which made her desperate to get away from that milieu. So anyway, so they got together and they both really had a strong Christian sense of doing good for those less fortunate, not in a pious kind of way at all. They were both very energetic, both good organisers, and they both felt the same way, that it was necessary to do what they could to help those who were less fortunate. And that's what they did when they went to Melbourne when Vida was about eight. And uh, Isabella went and worked in Collingwood, which was a pretty horrible area then because it was oh, rats and raw sewage and factories and and lots of typhoid and hideousness. She and um, the Reverend Charles Strong, who was a very important figure in early Melbourne history, got together and started the first crèche in Collingwood to look after the kids of factory workers. 
And Vida, as a young woman, when she left school, she went to Presbyterian Ladies College. When she left school, she actually decided not to go to university. There are other issues there. But she decided that she would help her mother in her work for the poor and in charity work. And that's how she started honing what obviously were innate organisation skills. That's how she started working with her mum. Mm. It is really, really interesting to see that relationship between um, with her mum and the fact that they were so such a powerful duo um, advocating mm. on so many different issues, but really with that focus of disadvantage and particularly women and working mothers. Um, it, those descriptions of Collingwood and the slums uh, in Melbourne were pretty um, shocking and rather mm. visceral when you read them and you kind of... Um, yeah, feel for the women who were clearly just doing their absolute best to scrape by and uh, and make it and feed their children. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. What, I was, course, go I'm ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> I was just going to say that the big thing, the first, well, there were two big things that they got involved in that Vida really um, started to, you know, feel her wings flying a bit. One was the monster petition which was 1901, and it was a petition signed by 30,000 women in Victoria to get the state vote because Victoria was the last of all the former colonies to give women the, the vote, the, the, the right to vote in state elections. The federal one came in 1903, which we'll talk about in a sec, I guess. But yes. really... That was the big thing. And she helped. She went around knocking on doors and saying to women, will you sign this petition? And that's how, that was really her first sort of solo effort. But then she and her mother were on the committee that put together the Queen Victoria Hospital, which was the first hospital in Victoria and I think probably in Australia that was set up by women for women and thanks to a woman named Annette Bear Crawford, who was one of the great movers and shakers of this campaign, they started what was called a shilling fund. So they'd go around again and ask women, please, can you contribute a shilling to the building of this hospital? And it was enormously successful because even women in rural Victoria who weren't going to use the hospital, which would be in Melbourne, put their money into it because... Every, women really felt very uncomfortable about male doctors. Women doctors were only just starting to appear. They'd only recently got the right, women had only just recently got the right to uh, graduate as doctors. And so they, they were sort of really wanting that to keep going, of course. And women in the provinces of Melbourne, in the in the outer reaches of Melbourne, just decided this was a really good thing and they were supporting the cause. So they got a lot of shillings and eventually the hospital was built. There was those two experiences, I think, and working with Annette Bear Crawford that really made Vida into the administrative organiser and incredibly competent um, organiser that she did become. Indeed. And um, and that was a really fascinating part of that story was the, the formation of the Queen Victoria Hospital. And you write that um, it was opened in, was it 1897? 
I think so, yes. Well, yeah. It was a bit later, I think. Oh, it was, it was two to... years later. It was meant to be 1897. That's right. For so yes. Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which was 1897, she'd been, hang on, 60 years on, on the throne. They were going to open this. That's why it was called the Queen Victoria. But it was a bit later than that. Yeah. And, um, and it was interesting that they were, um, you know, crowdfunding almost. It was like this, mm. as you say, this like modern or I guess 20th century... 19th, late 19th century um, version of crowdfunding to, to just ask for what is um, what people might be able to afford if it's you know our equivalent of a dollar fifty cents or two dollars um, mm. and uh, and it was interesting to hear about the fact that there were two hospitals um, that were seeking to be set up both being pioneered by women. The other one yeah. um, was an infectious diseases hospital, um, which was being pioneered by a wealthy um, person called uh, Janet, Lady Clark. Janet Lady Clark, yes, that's right, a very well-known philanthropist. And uh, on the conservative side of politics, it was quite funny. They were being set up at the same time, both, both sort of very good works, but the way being set up was entirely different because Janet Lady Clark being um, a well-known philanthropist and a, a pretty good all-round person, I think, very conservative, though, she had really good contacts with the male establishments of Melbourne at the time, politics, business, medicine. And so she was able to use those to um, spearhead the formation of the Infectious Diseases Hospital, which I think... Was it was it Fairfield? I think it was. Um, yes. Yeah. I think I think at last I think it was finally. Um, oh, um, which premier? Oh, Jeff Kennett. I think Jeff <laughs> Kennett. Yeah, Jeff Kennett closed it down a few years ago. I think. Sounds but, like him. Um, mm, I think I think it was actually. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, but the Queen Victoria Hospital is still there. I think. Yeah. I well, think. I, I it's not called the Queen Victoria. No. Um, anymore. I don't know if it's the one I'm thinking of. Um, I will check I think, that out in just a second. Yeah, I think, I think it... There was one, there was a hospital and it was in, um, maybe it was in Carlton. I think it was in Carlton. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, it wouldn't be there anymore. But there, there was a plaque um, where I think it was. But yeah. Right. Okay, listeners. <laughs> this is your cue. Yeah. Yeah. T yeah. Tweet me yeah, on right. tweet me on um, social media while we're talking, and you can um, I don't know get a special shout out for your um, your quick googling. Uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to ask about um, the way that women were seen, their role at the time in the late nineteenth century in Australia, because there were you you introduce us to a number of really prominent women who had different personalities, different priorities, but they were all, you know, really, um, really phenomenal women in terms of their presence, their in intellect, the way that they spoke, um, you know, from women that most people would be familiar with, like Catherine Helen Spence from South Australia, who um, is a yeah. really important figure in Australian politics as well and Australian life, mainly for her, um, you know, well, she was engaged in a lot of things, including um the constitution and the formation of that. 
um, for Australia, but also um, particularly interested in social issues and social justice. Um, but there were other women who seemed to be really important um, friends to Vida, but also mentors to Vida. And you did mention um, just there one of those great women who we perhaps aren't as familiar with either um, and, and her significance. Yes. In fact, that was one of the nice discoveries of this. They all became prominent. These women who were obviously intelligent, pretty well educated, very vocal and very determined. There was a whole cohort of them all over Australia, in fact, but um, I dealt most specifically with the ones in Melbourne. And there were two or three I'd like to mention here. One was Henrietta Dugdale, who with Annie Lowe set up the first women's suffrage organisation in Victoria. Um, and Henrietta was always portrayed as a battle axe. You know, sort of large, you've seen, we've all seen the cartoons, you know, sort of fussy bonnet, um, bustle, hugely overweight, probably glasses, you know, big mouths, all that. Henrietta was always portrayed like that because she was um, she she was an exponent of what was known as rational dress which was extremely hideous there were these dreadful bloomers that women wore but they were practical because you could bicycle in them and and women bicycling was it sounds so extraordinary now but women riding bicycles was revolutionary because women had always been sitting around waiting to be taken places by men unless they rode themselves. But, you know, the bicycling was, was a badge of independence. Henrietta Dugdale was, doing, was um, doing that. She was extremely scathing about men and how they were running things. And her, her um, colleague was Annie Lowe, who is really interesting. Annie Lowe... Nobody knows much about Annie Lowe, but she travelled all over Australia. She knew Indigenous people. She There was a Mr Lowe, but we, he didn't sort of figure much. But she is famous for one thing in particular, apart from starting the suffrage organisation with Henrietta, and that is her wonderful quip about when the shrieking sisterhood, as they were called, which is women who were assertive, um, they were known in the press as the Shrieking Sisterhood. And Annie Lowe, it was Annie Lowe who said, I would like to remind everybody that it is the male cockatoo who does the shrieking, which I've always <laughs> rather liked. <laughs> and it's the other so one, yeah, 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 she's good. The other one I like, I like to mention is Britannia Smythe, who is not really well known at all. She was extraordinary. She was a very bright woman from England. She came out to Victoria and she started, she became one of the first in the intake of women med studying medicine in the late 80s. But she couldn't afford to keep going because she didn't have any money. So she withdrew and started up, a, got married, started up a grocery shop and she spent her time uh, preaching and advocating um, responsible and reliable contraception for women. And underneath the counter in her uh, green grocer shop, she sold contraceptives, mostly diaphragms, because the thing about diaphragms, of course, is that um, men, no men would know that their women were using them, which was mm. the point. Mm. So it was a decision, it was very much a woman's decision. And she advertised in the press 
and she had quite a, she imported quite a lot of um, of her contraceptive devices from from France. And you read the you read the ads and you sort of think, oh really? You know <laughs> that works. <laughs> um, but she was um, she was. Terrific. She's about six feet tall. She had, um, she was um, easily caricaturable. I'm afraid she, she was large, large bosomed and six feet tall, and wore blue glasses. So you know, amazing. Absolute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of others. There are a lot of others. They were the three, three of the more prominent ones. But there were a lot of women backing them up, just quietly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's so true. I've, that's some of those anecdotes were what I really loved about um, this book was hearing about those other women as well and getting to know mm. their personalities and um, the kinds of challenges they had. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, she was really, really smart um, and could have done a medical degree. And um, but you know, she's done really important things like giving lectures on love, mm. courtship, and marriage, writing booklets on women's health. Um, so these are just really important things that in the, the late 19th century are actually quite radical things to be doing because these aren't public, you know, topics of discussion. Certainly not. They weren't either. And, of course, the problem was that there were very few women that women could go to for um, discussions about these things because, you know, men, you're going to a male doctor and, you know, if you were a young, yeah. if you were a young woman, a venturous young woman, you know, you were likely to be refused. Of course, you'd be refused because. Um, so there was a moral element in it, which was absolutely um, done away with by Britannia Smythe and other women because they were they focused on the practical. They they really did, and um, and that was why they were so successful because women went to them because they knew that they would get a fair hearing without judgment. Yeah, it was great to hear about um, the the really interesting um, setup of an outpatients clinic for women in Latrobe Street in Melbourne offering pregnancy advice and preventative medical services. And you write that very soon um, after opening, they had over 2,000 women patients um, which is really, you know, quite staggering. And they were not just well-to-do um, patients. It was across the spectrum of people um, in Melbourne, women who, you know, mm. no doubt um, found it very uncomfortable to talk to a male doctor, but perhaps even the male doctors didn't really understand um, where women patients were coming from, um, given that we really only, even today in women's health, um, don't often have a great understanding about um, women's health and the importance of um, women's experiences with their bodies. So, um, yeah, it was really, really nice really to hear. Cool. Yeah. 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 By the way, um, I think, uh, yeah, sorry, I just heard the other day that the, the site of that um, first clinic, it's near the Welsh Church in, um, in the Trobe Street, it's a little white church coming oh, near the library. Oh, yes, yes, yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and wow. uh, someone told me that the other day, so I'm just passing that on. I didn't <laughs> know that, but there you go. <laughs> I'll look it up. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Um, talking of old uh, churches and buildings, I have um, got a tweet from Graham, who, Graham Kidd, one of our um, listeners, who says it's the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. So the building uh -huh. is still there. 
Um, and that's, I believe, Lonsdale Street, um, but it is not a hospital anymore. And I was thinking of the Carlton Refuge, um, which was actually established in 1857 in Carlton oh, right. on Kettle Street. Yeah. yeah, and that was for... That was um, established as a maternity ward and a foster home for infants and was focused on maternal and child care um, and was kind of morphed into various iterations um, in the mid-20th century. So, um, Interesting, yeah. yeah. I was just thinking then that Victoria really was at the forefront of um, of you know, improvements for women. I mean, social, all those things that we've just been talking about. And it is even more extraordinary in that case that they that the Legislative Assembly didn't give, didn't see their way clear to giving women the state vote until 1908 when there are all these other terrific things going on. It's quite extraordinary. It really is. Isn't it? And, and I was Ooh. interested in the the fact that the bill um, in Victorian state parliament did get passed at the that lower house level um, every oh. time it was put forward, but it was the Legislative Council that kept on pushing it back. Um, I know, yeah. It's not only, you know, it's some, I really wanted to spend a bit more time on that because, um, but, you know, it was only, it was part of Vida's story and not, and not, main focus necessarily but the fact that the legislative assembly the legislative council was so much the province of conservative rich blokes which it was and uh, that sort of needs a bit a um, bit of unpicking actually because you have a look at the difference between the legislative council and the legislative assembly and with one sort of forward looking progressive and the other really being um desperately conservative and keen to keep the women out. Um, I think Janet Lady Clark and quite a few of her colleagues were not keen on women having the vote. I think they thought that was a bit much. So that not all the women, of course, thought that women should have the vote because um, Vida knew that, that it wasn't just men who were against this. There were quite a lot of conservative women as well. But just the the extent and the concentrated... Um, determination not to give women in Victoria the vote has always struck me as being quite extraordinary. And it only happened in 1908, the last of the states to do this, while they'd been the first to even contemplate it, because of the Premier Sir Thomas Bent could no longer resist the the pressure from well, so it wasn't just from the legislative assembly; it was um, it was other parts of of society. So he had to give in in the end, which he did. Finally, <laughs> finally, finally, yeah. yeah. And the monster petition um, that those women put together is actually at the Victorian Parliament, and I did get to see it. It's quite a phenomenal. Um, it's, it's so big, isn't it? So huge. long. <laughs> it really is a monster. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. yeah, to think of yeah that people were carting around huge pieces of paper and you know 
taking it door by door to um, different women. And also you talk, as we've already just been referencing there, the fact that you... I think people nowadays might assume that all women, you know, wanted the vote, all women mm, wanted equal yeah. rights, but this is not the case. Um, just like for men, there were men who wanted women to get the vote. There were also men who didn't. That's right. And, um, and you do, at the end of Chapter 6, mention the fact that Vida's father, Jacob, um, sat with her in the parliament um, watching the one of these suffrage bills um, be put forward. Uh, but, in fact, he wasn't there to support Vida. He was actually there um, to oppose that bill. So I also found that a really interesting point that you've um, uncovered. Actually, that was one of the most maddening things about the research because that came from, I think it was the age or the Argus, I think it was the Argus, just mentioned that they were sitting together and it was the lion lying down with the lamb, which mm. that's all they said. They didn't say which was which. I mean, you could probably guess, but um, but that is the only real intimation I could find, you know, in print, that Jacob really didn't want this to happen. Um, there, you could work it out from that why and where, because even though his kids, he wanted all his kids, the five of them, four girls and a boy, he wanted them all educated. But it was that, I am convinced, it's that thing about, well, you know, for the future generations, women should be well-educated, but they were not to have ambitions of their own. And I think that's probably what split the marriage, which it did in the end. Mm. But, um, so you can, it's kind of working backwards from, from that fact, but, um, Jacob was a fairly peppery character, and the marriage, as I said, the marriage, his marriage to um, Isabella didn't work out very well to the point they didn't divorce, but he went and lived elsewhere in the same building, mind you, but they, they still mm. lived um, separately. But it was just so interesting to see that there was a conflict there, and that's what you have to do when, you, when you're doing this sort of work. You think, God. I didn't know that. Where did that come from? Yeah. And you have to find that. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. It seems like it's something that's, you know, one of those lucky finds that you yeah. get something that is very revealing and maybe makes um, some of the other primary documents um, take on a new meaning and make more sense and tend to to link um, things together, ideas in your mind. And it's really um, great that the way that you write this book feels like such a, a – a story where you can start to connect with all of these characters and feel um, a, a kind of sense of empathy for them and an understanding of what they were going through. Um, and I wanted to pick up on a couple of things before we get to Vida's run for Parliament, which she did a number of times. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the really great things that she did was establish a couple of really important publications in Melbourne. One of them that you highlight early on in the book um, was the Australian Woman's Sphere. And um, you talk about uh, a kind of statement that the principal um, from PLC, the school she went to, made in a newsletter, um, and it was that women's sphere, it is said, is in the home, truly, but we cannot consent to have the radius from a vital centre arbitrarily limited. The sphere is a circle of chalk which the tide of necessity and the steps of these noble times is obliterating. And... Mm. Um, Gosh, that's such a great statement, yeah. but also very, very radical. Yeah. 
Yeah. Ooh, hang on. Hello? Can you hear me? Something. There's all this twitching going on. It's all these sort of beeps going on my end. Anyway, that's all right. Okay, um, we, we can't hear it from our end, I don't think. So oh, as long right. as you're okay. I'm fine. That's okay. Oh, good. Yeah. Let yeah, me know if there but, are issues. I was just going to bring in the other um, publication for discussion, which was The Woman Voter as well, and that uh, yeah. um, is just such a great, fascinating read, like to to download the PDFs, which you can do from the archives and read through it. It's just lovely. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with those too because really they are, they're easy to read um, and yeah. the clarity. Yeah, they're very clearly written. There's very little sort of journalistic fussiness that you often see in periodicals of that time. I mean, um, one thing you notice when you're going through newspapers for this sort of period is the fact that um, the Bible and Shakespeare were kind of common currency and people sort of used phrases from both to show how well educated they were. Vida didn't bother with any of that stuff. She just said what she had to say and uh, and so did the contributors to to her newspapers. I suspect that she wrote most of both of them, really, although she did go away occasionally and come back and kept it in other people's hands. But I think she always was a strong contributor to it and I think it's a real tribute to the clarity and force of her writing, don't you think? Oh, yeah. No, it's like she she's clearly very articulate, but also she knows how to speak to everyone. Um, and mm. she really, I mean, you do talk about the fact that her family at different points were more well-off than some a number of other families and they weren't doing too badly in the sense that mm. they could rent homes in fairly nice suburbs. And, um, you know, even uh, Vida's sister, I believe, married a... Um, a man who eventually became wealthy, what you call in a in that time a millionaire, um, and he yeah. also provided some kind of um, support to Vida and her newspapers and publications. Yeah, that was uh, Henry Hyde Champion. That was another that was another gloriously interesting find. I just found something in of all things the St James Gazette. Thank you, <laughs> Trove. That uh-huh. sort of said that he'd become the uh, the legatee of his of a cousin who had been killed in one of the Afghan wars, and bequeathed all his fortune to Henry. And I thought, hang on, that solves a huge problem because uh, I had no idea how she funded all this stuff. And it's mm. you know, I think Henry must have you know given her the odd pound or two. In fact, I'm sure he did. Yeah. yeah, he mm. sounded like he mm. had um, a lot of personality as well. He did. In fact, he's a very interesting character. Also, he was uh, he was a bit of a gadfly. Um, you know, he always supported really good left wing causes. Set up um, a bookshop with his wife Elsie, who was Vida's yeah. sister, called the Book Lover and Book Lover's Library, and uh, actually championed quite a lot of new writing at the time and was, in fact, for a while, George Bernard Shaw's Australian agent. So oh, he's, he's, worth a, he's worth a good biography on his own, actually. Really, he's <laughs> a very interesting bloke. Mm. Yeah, no, that's so true. Um, just one other male uh, figure who pops up briefly was um, John Monash, which I was really surprised by. So was I. <laughs> yeah. How did that happen, and why was he significant? Oh well, he wasn't really. He was uh, he was the one who got away, as far as Vida's family were concerned. He was um, 
he he kind of met Vida when she'd left school and she was she was very good looking. She really was. You can see the photographs of pictures of her. And um he decided that he would quote fix his interest with her. And so he was kind of a bit interested in her mm. and she thought he was a pompous prat, basically. I think. <laughs> and uh, and which he probably was and he yeah. was very very annoyed about that. Didn't think this was a good thing at all. But um um, and she turned him down. She spurned him. It was terrible. Yes. But in fact, uh, um, they became friends later on, and I think they stayed friends. Um, the point about meeting him, I think, was that she went to PLC, and PLC was not only a hotbed of interesting radical ideas for women, um, but it was a really good sort of hub for meeting people of influence. And I think when she started her political career, I think that she drew on quite a few of the contacts that she'd made as a result of going to PLC and as a result of her father's work in the militia because he was a, a colonel in the local militia and his mother's and uh, her mother's charity work. So she's really quite, um, she's quite well credentialed, Vida, when she started her political career. Yeah, and um, you do mention the fact that she uh, even went to school with um, Nellie Melba. Yeah, I've got a theory about that. I just, uh, yeah, Nellie Mitchell. Nellie Mitchell, who was also say, also sang in the choir of the Australian Church, which was the church that they all belonged to. My theory about Nellie Melba and Vida goes like this. I have no evidence for this, I might tell you. <laughs> but the point is that Vida was known as a really good, solid, forceful public speaker. And she knew how to project her voice in large spaces. In fact, she she spoke in the Royal Albert Hall a few years later um, in London. And I have a theory that I'd like to think that Nellie Mitchell actually gave her lessons in voice projection. So (laughs) I have no idea. You never know, no. But it's one of the nice things about this, this sort of work because you can kind of, you can join a few dots even if they're not, um, real dots, you know. Not, yeah. Uh, you can yeah, you can join sort of things in your head. But um, I wouldn't be surprised. They were contemporaries. Yes, it, it does give it some colour um, as well and to hear about these great women who were very um, excellent at networking and working together mm. and um, about, right. yeah. about so many issues, of course, we're talking about women's suffrage um, and also the political arena. Um, I wanted to touch on the fact that um, Vida actually went to America just before she ran for parliament and it was important because she was actually um, attending the first conference of the International Woman Suffrage Alliance in Washington and was representing Australia, um, which, as you say, was almost an, a unanimous choice, um, which goes I guess, to show just how well-known she was at the time and how prominent um, she was as a campaigner on this issue, not just for Australian women but for women in Britain as well um, as other countries. And I I was really shocked to hear that she actually met Theodore Roosevelt, um, the president of the US. That's right. That's a lovely story. Yeah. and I don't think he impressed her as much as people like Susan Anthony and um, other women who were the great suffragists. By the way, one of the interesting things about this whole period were the, the tabs that various women's groups 
suffrage women's groups kept on each other. They all knew each other. They all they all corresponded incessantly from the US, the UK, from Turkey, from Switzerland, from Australia, all over the place. So that was um, that was really interesting. But Vardy, yes, she went to the US and she was there for several months. And she did meet Theodore Roosevelt, who received her and sort of said sort of things like, oh, Australia, what a wonderful young country and all that stuff. And she came out um, and one of um, his colleagues said to her, what did you think about Teddy? And she said, I have a copy of The Stars and Stripes. I shall put it around his photograph. And if he does something I disapprove of, I shall turn that photograph to the wall. <laughs> and the guy said, oh, you won't have to do that with Teddy. I mean, he's all right. And I just thought when I read that, I thought, how Australian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really sort of taking, you know, taking the mickey just very quietly and the American reaction of un- not understanding irony. I, think, mm. I really enjoyed that. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very little deference to power and, and politicians, yeah. which is great. Oh, very much. Very, very little. Yes. He might have been the president of the United States, but for Vida, didn't have all the same reaction as she did to meeting Carrie Chapman Cash and uh, Susan B. Anthony and all the other prominent women who were trying to get the vote for American women. Yeah. 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 I'm speaking with Jacqueline Kent, uh, who is a biographer, and we're talking about Vida Goldstein, or Stein, I should say, Vida Goldstein, um, and we're talking about Jacqueline's new book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time. Um, Now, Jacqueline, it's really wonderful um, to hear and read all about Vida as a political campaigner because, as we've already referenced early on, she was one of those women in 1903 who put her hand up to run for federal parliament in the Senate representing Victoria. Um, and as we've said, there were other women um, who ran for the Senate and also one who ran for the lower house. And they were all, as you say, progressive independents. None of them were aligned to a particular political party. Um, But Vida was so adamant about not being tied to a political party and was really quite clear that she would remain an independent. um, And she did go on to contest other elections. So it's interesting to see that she wasn't, she was unwavering in her commitment to being an independent. Um, Could you share with us that first run and her, the kind of convictions that really made her um, who she was as a political candidate? In that group, she never varied very much. She, she ran five times between 1903 and 1917. And in the last two times, she actually ran as a pacifist candidate during World War One, which took a certain degree of fearlessness, I've always felt. I've always admired her for that because, um, you know, she had to put up with quite a bit. There was a lot of hostility in all all her runs. The first one, though, was, good heavens, fancy a woman standing for Parliament, you know, as if it was um, something really weird. And apparently constitutional lawyers went off to see if she was even eligible. So there you go. But basically her position never, as I said, didn't vary much when she was talking about the rights of women. What she was interested in the first time she went was equality and education. She always felt that the question of whether giving women the vote 
made any difference was completely irrelevant, which of course it is. She said the point about giving women the vote is not whether it would make a difference, but the point is it is a badge of equal citizenship. Women were equal citizens, therefore they deserved and should have the vote. And she didn't vary from, from that very much. And what she was after was equality in such things as divorce laws and the role of women and pay, of course, equal pay, and, you know, women having jobs where they were dealing with other women, for example, in prisons, and so on. And so all those things, it was all to do with equality. She always also felt, and she was very strong on this, that women and women alone understood the issues that confronted women and children. Men didn't have a clue and that they needed to be educated about this and women in Parliament was exactly what was needed for that to happen. And she also didn't think that, um, that um, women should have any... Um, particular um, deference due to them. It was it was getting the same rights as men that she was keen on. The education side of it was she was very keen to put up her hand to see that women got uh, women understood what their new right to vote actually meant and the influence they could have. And she travelled around Victoria for two months. It's quite extraordinary when you look at the, in summer, wearing all those enormous clothes, (laughs) one trunk. (laughs) She would travel around and all her, um, everywhere she went, she was um, phenomenal. Everybody sort of flocked to hear her. And she showed she was pretty good on the hustings too. She She did something that no woman had ever done. Apart from speaking in public, which women were not supposed to do because, you know, it was not something that women... Women didn't push themselves forward, right? That was the Mm. idea. Um, But she was very quick on her feet. And when she got hecklers, she knew exactly how to deal with them. At one meeting, she looked at a group of people and said, well, have you any other questions? And they didn't. And she said, well, good. Well, in that case, I'll ask you some questions. <laughs> and what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I need to ask you questions because I need to know what you think if I get into Parliament. I mean, mm. really smart way to do it. And, of course, she could. All, she was also pretty good at the put-down. There was one bloke who said, don't you wish you were a man? And her reply was, don't you wish you were? <laughs> so, <laughs> She was was extraordinary. Yeah, I think she was absolutely wonderful. And um, that's the pattern that she carried on with with all her other other attempts to get into Parliament. The first time she tried, she got about 51,500 votes, which was about half the the number of votes that the most successful male candidate got in Victoria. They changed the system shortly afterwards. Um, in 1924, um, voting became compulsory. It was, it was not compulsory. It was um, first past the post in, in, um, in voting. I suspect that now, in fact, I do think, and I've had a bit of pushback about this, but I really do believe that had the current system of Senate um, preference and election been um, there at the time, I think she would have got in. 
Mm. Well, 51,500 votes is a lot when you're thinking yeah, it about it. And you yeah. do say that voting wasn't compulsory at the time um, right. and also that just because she was a woman didn't mean that women would actually vote for her, um, right. which was one of the points that Catherine Helen Spence somewhat brutally made. Um, she sounds like she was a particularly a, a realist, but um, it is true that, you know, you Although um, Vida was saying, you know, loyalty to one's sex is important um, in this situation, it didn't necessarily end up that way. You couldn't um, expect that every single woman who had the vote was going to choose Vida in Victoria. No, that's absolutely true. And to do her justice, Vida never got bitter about that. She never, she sort of thought, oh, well, you know, that's the way it is. And she... Um, she talks about one of the reasons she didn't get in in the first time, her first attempt was the prejudice of sex was one of the phrases that she used. She didn't say the male prejudice of sex or not enough women voted for me, etc. She She just left that one open. And I think that was pretty much how she felt, that she didn't really expect every man or every woman, as you say, to vote for her just because she was a woman. Mm. And in terms of the other runs that she had, I mean, she did run in the seat of Kuyong, which is, um, you know, nowadays known mm. as a very blue ribbon liberal with a capital L um, seat. And even then, I believe Kuyong was quite a well-to-do mm. suburb or electorate, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And the reason she chose Kuyong, which is pretty much where it is now, I think, the reason she chose it was that in her previous campaigns, she had the most votes from women in that electorate. Mm. Um, she was unfortunately standing against somebody who'd already been um, a parliamentarian, Sir Robert Best, and, you know, he actually, you know, did quite well and she didn't. So, and he'd been the member before. So she really, you know, she didn't really have much chance with that. But um, I really think I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about this independent business because um, everybody said, oh, the reason she didn't get in was that she wasn't a member of a political party. Well, they weren't exactly knocking down the doors to get to her, you know. I mean, they, they, were, they were male establishments. They had both sides, of both the Conservatives and Labor, had already set up the way they were going to run pretty well forevermore, the way they run now mm. more or less. And, um, and, you know, she was knocking on the door to be let in and they weren't going to let her in. The Trades, the, the trades and Labor Council actually supported her a couple of times, I think, but, um, but, the, but the political parties didn't. And it was the same with the other women who stood, all the women, up until about 1943, all the women who tried to stand for national parliament stood as independents and none of them got in. And it is because, I think, of the party organisation. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, even when we have heard, of course, that Susan Ryan um, passed away over the weekend, she yeah. was the first Labor, female Labor cabinet minister in a, at the federal level, and that was in the 80s. So, That's right. you know, these are very yeah. male-dominated um, parties with a very particularly blokey culture um, that even some of the men didn't quite fit into. Um, no, that's right. Of course, mm. if you're thinking about Labor, it's probably even more so given the prominence of trade unions within Labor mm. at the time. So, yeah, that, it's a, it's a very right. important point that you make about um, the parties, no doubt, not really desperately well, trying to 
recruit women as parliamentarians because they'd like to get elected themselves. Well, that's right. And even, um, I quoted the book, I think, um, a woman who was the coordinator of EMILY's List um, in Victoria said, really, that women have very little to do with the organisation of the Federal Labor Party. And, of course, it's certainly true with the Conservatives, but mm. but they don't. The, the, guy, the guys run the game, basically, really, yeah. still. They mm. do. That's very mm. true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and one of the interesting points we should make, because um, we've said that the first women elected to federal parliament were elected in 1943 and Vida died in August 1949. So she did mm-hmm. actually see women finally make it, two women, um, which I guess is a nice thing to see at least, is that she saw it, it eventually happened. But um, obviously it wasn't for her. No. Um, and in fact, she did write letters of congratulation to those first those first successful women. But, you know, there were lovely echoes of 70s feminism later on because she wrote to friends. She used to get really frustrated in the 20s and 30s because they weren't radical. They All these women were not radical. They weren't doing what the right... Well, I mean, they were in the middle of a depression apart from other things. But um, but really, um, it's you hear women who came to, well, Susan, Susan Ryan's generation, I guess, who came to prominence in the 70s saying exactly the same thing about young women now. I think it's what always happens, actually. Yeah. But it's no, not true, true now. I mean, you know, just so to say, I mean, I can't imagine even 10 years ago that, you know, Malala and um, Greta Thunberg would have gained any prominence at all, let alone having the courage to stand up and do what they've done. Institutionally, though, I don't think a lot's changed. Mm. Yeah, the way that politics is done, the game that's played and mm. um, the, yeah, the parliament as well, it is very much the same um, and it is a constant discussion for debate really about have things changed, um, how do you change a system that is just mm. so set in its ways um, and, you know, some people have suggested that it's about having more role models but I would say it's not, you know, that's important to see that you know, you can actually yeah. do this, you can put your hand up, um, but it is, it's so much more than that. And oh, um, yes. Yeah, I wanted to bring in something that comes up for women in politics a lot um, and for Julia Gillard, uh, for so many different women who are leaders, and that's their appearance and the fact that people uh, will often, or journalists in particular, it seems, but also the general population, um, when a woman runs for parliament, it's so much harder to get that cut through on policy and content when you can often be sidelined by these very fringe um, distractions, including, you know, what hat someone's wearing or whether their haircut is any good. And Vida was also subject to that kind of, um, that, annoying, um, but also sometimes, I guess, insulting uh, constant remarks about one's appearance. That's true. And what makes it even worse in Vida's case, I think, was that that it was mostly admiring. Yeah. I mean, she never got she, she never got told that she was a battle axe or a bad person in that respect. But it was the fetching bonnets, it was the little rose-trimmed whatevers, and, you know, it was all that stuff. And she was always praised for the, um, for the beauty of her dress. And, in fact, when you look at the photographs, she was pretty good. She t- 
turned out really, mm. really, really beautifully. She was beautifully turned out. But, um, you know, and if you sort of call, if you call people on that, they'll just say, but we said nice things about her. You know, as if, <laughs> as if say, as if that counts really. And uh, yeah. as I say in the book, it's a pretty short road between Bider's fetching bonnets and Julie Bishop's red shoes. I mean, really, mm. <laughs> it's yeah. never changed. And that brings in the role of the press, of course, which has been, un, you know, well, mostly unremittingly hostile to or reluctant to engage with women in that way. And I think Susan Ryan, the late Susan Ryan would have agreed with that because she got a really bad rap when she wanted to um, take money away from private schools, as you recall. She did. She got some, you know, she decided that they were all too rich. So the press gave her hell, absolute hell, and it was damaging the party. So she had to be demoted. She was. So frustrating. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It, it happens mm. so so many times across history. It repeats. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, one of just finally, I wanted to bring in something else that is um, interesting to me in the sense that Vida never married or had children, which um, yes. to me it shouldn't be a big deal. But at the time, um, it no doubt might have been noted. But I wondered whether it was. Was that something anyone noticed? That's interesting, isn't it? No because I think people took for granted at the time that any woman who was going to be prominent in or seek prominence in any public area was ipso facto not married or with children or in alliance, not that one on the head with having 11 <laughs> kids or whatever she had in 1943. But I think that was part of it. She was never stigmatised as a spinster, because she was far too stylish and smart for that. Mm. But um, I wonder, too, about, I mean, about her relationship. She was very close to Cecilia John, who was one of her great helpers during the, um, the World, War, World War I campaigns. They were close. They travelled together. They were a power unit. I am pretty sure they probably were a couple, mm. because Cecilia did identify as lesbian. Vida never did. Um, but I think they probably were. But, I mean, you know, how do you know, really? Uh, it's, uh, I, I actually don't. I actually thought that Vida was one of these people who um, she didn't ever use, she never used, as far as I can work out, she never used sort of, she never flirted, she never did, she never did the sort of, made played those sort of, sexy games with men. I mm. think she thought that the most important thing about her was always her work and her beliefs, and I think that was pretty consistent. Mm. It's really wonderful to see that that was, you know, a, an early role model, really, of your courage of your convictions and doing whatever you think is right, even if it doesn't fit with the social norm of the time. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. yeah. Just mm. finally, Jacqueline, um, in terms of Vida, I mean, you must have gotten to know her so well in a way. Obviously, you never got to meet, but in a way you kind of have because you've consumed and um, read so much of her, uh, you know, writing and, and like, also, of course, the, the people who knew her so well. And your subtitle for this book is um, A Woman for Our Time, and that resonated with me because I do feel 
getting to know her myself, that she does feel like a very progressive, fresh, um, insightful person. And even mm-hmm. some of the views and things that she was advocating on then have a lot of currency now. And um, That's yeah. yeah, I just wanted to ask about her, her present day legacy. And, um, you know, if you were thinking of ways that would appropriately um, recognise her achievements and her importance. Of course, this book is one great way of doing that. But are there things that you feel should be done or could be done to better remember great women like Vida Goldstein that you've gotten to know? Oh, yes. I think it would be one very good step would be to make the seat of Goldstein, which was gazetted in 1984, Make that um, a very much woman's, make sure a woman always held it because it's never been, it's never been held by a woman. I think um, Tim Wilson's the member now. No, Tim Wilson's the member now. But a couple of, you know, it's always been liberal held and held by a bloke. Mm. And, And several of the people who have occupied that seat have beliefs that Vida would have absolutely excoriated. So that would be one thing. Um, I don't know. Things named after her, please. Yes. You know, the usual things like, um, well, societies, lectures, hospitals, you know, Mm. roads. You know, it would be really nice if we were much more aware, and this is not just Vida, but it would be really, really good if we were much more aware of the people whose names, particularly women, whose names are given to things, you know, mm-hmm. who is the, what is the Rose Scott lecture? Who is Rose Scott? That kind of thing. And I think we are notoriously bad at this. We really are. We do not put blue plaques up on places where famous people have lived, particularly famous women. And we really should, because honestly, dealing with Vida and all that, we do have quite a lot to be proud of and to recognise, and we should, and we don't. Yeah, that's so so true, and um, and I think you know it's, we should be walking through a park and seeing Vida's statue and going, hey, who was that person? Um, because we do that with lots of men who you know no doubt made contributions, but aren't particularly well remembered now. And I think that visibility and acknowledgement of not just Vida, but as you say, these other great prominent women that you bring into this book really Mm. do deserve to be remembered far more than they are. And, um, yeah, I think this book is such a great uh, way of remembering Vida. So I did want to say thank you um, for doing such a brilliant job with this book. You're a very talented writer. (laughs) And uh, I think you've really done her justice. Oh, thanks very much. And by the way, just to finish, maybe the listeners of Triple R can get a shilling fund going to get a to get a statue going. What do you reckon? Oh, that's a great <laughs> idea. I'm going to put yeah, that, that on the good. on the future plans list. Thank you for that, um, Jacqueline. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you, and I'm so grateful for your time and insight. And I hope you have a, a lovely week. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Amy. Thanks a lot. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm now really delighted to welcome back onto the show 
uh, Professor David Lindenmeyer, who is an Australian scientist and academic based at the Australian National University at the Fenner School. He's a professor of ecology and conservation biology, as well as um, biodiversity. And uh, David has so, such a great um, wealth of expertise. He's published extensively in peer-reviewed journals and um, he's very much well known for his work on the forests of the Central Highlands and the many threatened and critically endangered species that reside in those forests in that really beautiful area just outside of the city of Melbourne. And um, I've had the real pleasure of speaking with Professor Lindenmeyer in past years, and it's great to see his new research that's just been released. Um, of, of course, there are many pieces that have been released this year, but this one in particular has been published in the Animal Conservation Journal and is called The Response of Arboreal Marsupials to Long-Term Changes in Forest Disturbance. And we'll start talking about all of that um, and more. And uh, I'm welcome David Lindenmeyer now, and thank you so much for joining us on the show, David. That's a pleasure, Amy. Thank you. And uh, and it's really great to talk about these issues, which are so important, um, particularly to Victorians, but also they are important to the rest of Australia and the world. And as we saw over the weekend, um, biodiversity is a global issue in terms of the threats to it. And we have seen in Australia record amounts of land clearing and um, so many different threats to our native animals, but also to the forests themselves, um, which are just as important. And we have spoken in the past about the Central Highlands and what makes it a really special place. And um, maybe we'll just uh, set the scene for those who may not have heard you um, chat before on this show and talk a little bit about the mountain ash forests and what makes the ecology of the Central Highlands really special. Well, the Central Highlands area is, is about one and a half hours northeast of the centre of Melbourne. And it's special for many reasons. One is that it's got the, the tallest flowering plants on the planet. So the mountain ash trees are approaching 100 metres tall. And in the past, some of those trees were, were some of the tallest trees ever recorded on Earth. But more specifically for the people of Melbourne, the mountain ash forests are critical for providing almost all of the water for the five million people that live in Melbourne and for many hundreds of thousands of people that live north of the divide in regional Victoria. But they're also really important because they're almost the entire distribution of species such as leadbeater's possum and other, other animals that people mightn't have heard of, such as the barred galaxis, which is an endangered species of native fish. So they're very important for... Biodiversity, very important for scenic values, very important for water values. And also we've discovered in the past 10 years or so that they're the most carbon-dense forests anywhere on the planet. So they're really an important part of tackling dangerous climate change in terms of storing large amounts of carbon. So critical forests, beautiful places, amazing biodiversity, and uh, really an enormous untapped tourism resource. But uh, the vast majority of people in Australia and in Melbourne really have no idea that these forests are even there. And um, I think it's critical that people get out there and have a look at them. They're really stunning places to see. 
Mm. And it is important to get out there and to get amongst it because um, we don't really appreciate it until I think we experience it for ourselves. And that's something that I certainly feel is that once you go to the Central Highlands, um, it's only then that you truly understand what we um, go on and on about, about how special and important it is, because um, it becomes very, very obvious uh, very quickly that it's a magical place with um, visually beautiful, but also beautiful bird song as well. Uh, you're surrounded by an amazing orchestra of sounds. And um, of course, the Central Highlands are also the home to the superb lyrebird, which is one of the places that that um, bird is found. And um, I was listening to your discussions around the fact that you've been conducting um, long surveys within the Central Highlands for a very long time, um, across 40-plus years, um, and that that's a really valuable way to approach science in this area. Um, and the fact that you do pay attention not just to the trees themselves and the mammals, but also the forest birds and the fact that these um, birds that do reside in the Central Highlands are also very important to indicate the health of a forest. Um, before we get into your, your new research and study that's out, I just wanted to ask a little bit about the forest birds and how they inform the types of um, questions, uh, how they answer the types of questions that you're asking when you're doing these um, surveys and research studies in the Central Highlands? Well, yes, what, one of the things that really distinguishes our, our research team is that we, we look at a whole range of aspects of how ecosystems work. So not only do we look at the possums and gliders, but we look at reptiles, how they're changing through time, forest birds, and the forest itself. And we, so what we do is actually piece together how the entire ecosystem works and how the different species in the system really indicate the condition of the forest over time. And in the case of birds, they tell us a lot about what we call functional diversity. So uh, how many different species that do different functions in the forest, whether it's to move, move leaf litter, such as the, the superb lyrebird. Now, that animal is extraordinary in the forest. It moves about 150 tonnes of leaf litter every year. And when, when people have done experiments actually excluding superb lyrebirds from the forest, the leaf litter system gets heavily compacted and it becomes a system that's much more uh, prone to, to high-severity fire in the absence of these, these remarkable animals. So the key issue here is to really understand the system through all the different components of biodiversity and how they respond differently to, to different disturbances, whether it's logging or fire or a combination of both. So, so that's a really important thing to be able to follow through long periods of time. And we are now... Uh, beyond 37 years of having followed species in these systems to really understand what's happening. Yeah, it's such an important point to make is that there are so there's so many interconnected um, parts of the forest and that really when one thing changes, a number of other things can change and be thrown off balance. Um, and when you look at these disturbances, um, we're talking about in this particular study native forest logging um, and also fo forest fires, which of course can be bushfires, but they can also be caused by humans um, in terms of the post-logging fires that we see in the Central Highlands um, that I know that you and colleagues have studied in a lot of detail as well and the effect that they, they have on the soil 
Um, and of course, the other, the understory, the kind of low lying vegetation in these forests as well. Um, I did want to ask about this particular study, which was looking at the effects, the long-term changes that um, are caused by forest disturbance with those two key disturbances. Um, in terms of the the span the, of data that you've gathered, it says that um, this data in particular that you've been using was gathered between 1997 and 2018, which sounds like it's um, a really rich um, data source. And no doubt, does that mean that because you've been able to survey this the same sites over a long period, that you scientifically can feel quite confident in the findings that you're making? Absolutely. So, so one of the important things here is that not only are these studies going for very long periods of time, and this, in that particular study, that's that's extended beyond 20 years. But we're studying not just one or two sites, but in that case, well over 160 sites right across the entire region. And so, what we're really able to do in that case is to understand how the landscape that's surrounding those sites is changing. And what are the drivers of the change? So, so um, in those cases, what we see is that, yes, there's extensive fire, as there was in 2009, but there was, there's also been incrementally over the past couple of decades more and more logging coops put into the landscape. And so by following each site every year and measuring it in the same way, we can start to see the cumulative effects of the change in the landscape on the species in the forest. And what we found in that study was that the more the forest was logged, the less we started to see leadbeater's possum and the less we started to see some of the other species as well. So essentially what's happening then is that as the landscape changes, we start to see changes in the, in the, the occurrence of some of these key species. And this is fundamentally important because when we have things like the timber release plan in Victoria with more and more areas being set aside to cut in the coming decades, animals like leadbeater's possum are going to become rarer and rarer and rarer as time goes on. And, and essentially that's, that's a really big issue because there is a lot more forest that's planned for cutting in the next couple of decades and that means that animals such as leadbeater's possum that are already critically endangered are going to be in really serious trouble. And so there's a, there's a lot to be done in this space to make sure that we don't lose species like that. And then other ones that are really in trouble as well. Another classic example is the greater glider, an extraordinary animal that looks like a small gliding koala. Now, these, that animal has actually declined by nearly 80% in the last, in the last 20 years. So that's a catastrophic decline of an extraordinary species. Now, that animal doesn't do well where the forest has been logged, and it also doesn't do well where there's been extensive fire in the landscape. So there's a lot to be done in terms of trying to stop these kinds of iconic species going extinct. And the kinds of data that are being gathered now indicate some of the key drivers of decline of those species. And the amount of fire and the amount of logging in the landscape are two of those key drivers. And this work, for the first time, really documents the relationship between the decline in populations and the changes in the surrounding landscape that we see over a prolonged period of time. Yeah, and um, and these really are 
you know, disturbing in the sense that we're seeing, as you say, more areas set aside by Vic Forests for logging um, that they are intending to log a number of areas that have had um, the presence of those two really important species. Of course, there are others, but you do talk about the fact that the leadbeater's possum and the greater glider are range-restricted species, and um, the greater glider only consumes eucalypt leaves. So it sounds like the t the kind of behaviours that these mammals have, the the way that where they reside, um, what they need, which is hollow-bearing trees. Um, are very important and would naturally be really severely affected if old or even moderately old trees are logged or under threat by fire. Um, in terms of hollow-bearing trees, what, what defines a hollow-bearing tree and how old does a tree have to be to become a valuable and useful place for um, one of these mammals to reside and to also reproduce in? Okay, so, so there's a couple of things that, that are important here to, to sort of preface this conversation. The first one is that what we know is that the areas where these animals are most likely to occur are also the areas of the forest which are likely to be logged. So there's a quite a strong conflict between the different land uses for conservation versus timber production. That was some work that we published uh, late last year. So that's, that's a really serious issue. So that we looked at the distributions of the 70 forest-dependent threatened species in Victoria and looked at their distributions and then looked at where the forest was likely to be harvested in the next five years. And there's a very strong relationship between the two. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the places where animals nest and den are these very large trees that are typically 170 years old or older. And it's not just one tree that these animals inhabit. They actually shift between multiple trees on an almost nightly basis in some cases. And so the average greater glider or leadbeater's possum might have five, six, ten or even more hollow trees that it's got to find to survive in. And the reason why these animals need to shift regularly between these big trees is, is so that they can avoid being predated by large forest owls. It's a, it's a defensive mechanism to stop them being eaten. And so forests that have lots of these big old trees are really critical places for animals to survive. Now, the, the reality is that in Victoria, that's old-growth forest, and Victoria's lost 77% of its old-growth forest in the last 25 years. Now, a lot of it's been lost through fire, but some of it's been lost as a consequence of logging. And logging in regrowth forests will also eliminate these large old trees. They're not well protected. They're very badly damaged, not only by the logging operations themselves, but also uh, wind throw and fire across the landscape. So they're becoming incredibly rare resources for these animals, and they simply can't survive without them. And so there's some really significant issues here, and the latest work that we've just published in animal conservation indicates that there is a strong decline in these animals with a decline in the abundance of these large old hollow-bearing trees that are more than 170 years old. So Victoria is really going to be facing a major crisis with not only leadbeater's possum and greater gliders, but in fact all of the high-dependent species that occur in these forests. So in the wet eucalypt forests of the Central Highlands, we're dealing with over 40 species of vertebrates that are dependent on these hollows. They don't nest or den anywhere else 
and there's already a catastrophic decline. And the population, these trees, has halved in the last 22 years. So the, the, there are not good outcomes in these forests unless we start to really seriously look at some much stronger reservations of, of forests across these systems. Yeah. And in terms of the areas that have been logged, you know, obviously you've got such a wide range of sites that you've been following for a, a long time. Um, what kind of, what age of the trees do get logged? Is it a really wide ranging age? And, you know, obviously um, are they are they not only regrowth trees, but also these old old trees that have hollow bearing logs? And um, I guess what do you have an understanding of the proportion of those those kind of age ranges? So, so at the moment, what's happened is that in in that Central Highlands region, much of the forest that that is now being harvested is is forest that regenerated after major bushfires in 1939. So they're about they're a little bit over 80 years old. But sprinkled around in, inside those regrowth forests, those 80-year-old regrowth forests, are trees that are occasional scattered living and dead trees that can be two, three, four, five hundred years old. And those are the trees that are fundamentally important for, for species like leadbeater's possum and greater gliders. And the reason that those, those scattered trees are so important is that 98% of the entire forest is 120 years or, uh, sorry, is 80 years or younger. Now, the, the key thing here is the age of the trees. So mountain ash and alpine ash trees don't start to first begin to develop hollows until they're about 120 years old. And, and therein lies the problem. And that is that a lot of the really important forest that's, is going to be the next cohort of old forest is this 1939 regrowth. But the more of it that's cut, the less of it will grow through to become old growth and the more severe the population declines will be of animals like greater gliders and leadbeater's possum. So we can see on the horizon an even bigger train wreck unfolding than what's already happening. And that's what our data is showing. Our data is showing that the declines of possums and gliders is driven not only by the amount of logging in the landscape, the amount of fire in the landscape, but the rate at which large old trees are being lost from the landscape as well. And it's going to be a very long time before new cohorts of trees are recruited, but especially so if we keep logging the ones that are presently 80 years old. So there's actually a need to start to intervene now because it's quite clear what the trajectories of all these populations are. And it's not it's not looking good. Mm. And and in terms of the 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 kind of effects on these forests, I know we've spoken in the past about how they are a kind of temperate forest and that they have some beautiful, you know. Um, rainforest, I guess, elements where there are lovely mosses and ferns and it has a very interesting multi-storied um, biodiversity within it, um, thinking particularly of Tulangi State Forest, but no doubt a number of other areas in the Central Highlands have that um, feature. And I was wondering, in terms of the sites that you're looking at and the fires that you've noticed as one of those disturbances, um, what's the proportion of human 
caused fires, like when you're thinking about post-logging fires versus those bushfires, which I guess now you could say are definitely human-caused, but perhaps the 19, in the 1930s it was more of a natural disturbance. Is there a kind of understanding of how much we're causing these fire disturbances more recently? Well, I, I think it's. I think there's a notion of direct and indirect causes of fire in this mm. case. So, so one of the key factors that contributes to wildfire is is weather and climate. And there's no doubt that there's been major changes in climate over the past 50 years. And you can see that reflected in what's called the Forest Fire Danger Index. And and so we see, for example, a huge increase in the number of extreme fire days, a very big in- increase in temperature, which in turn affects the, the, the likelihood of fires. And so there's a deep science now of what's called attribution science, which indicates that it's very unlikely that the conditions that promote fire would occur in the absence of climate change. So there's the, the indirect effect of climate on fire is massive. There's, there's no doubt also that in some fire seasons, not the previous one that we've just had, 2019-20, but in previous fire seasons, a reasonable proportion of the fires have actually been deliberately lit as arson or accidents. Um, but this fire season was different. The, the incidence of arson was lower than is normally seen. So work that was published in 2015, not by us, by, but by a group at University of Wollongong, suggested that up to half of major wildfires actually have a direct human origin. So we're actually looking at a pretty dangerous cocktail of, of problems here. One is, is rapidly changing climate, uh, but also an increase in the number of, of human source direct ignitions. And the third thing that's happening is that in some places, for example, in Tasmania, but also in parts of southern Australia, other parts of southern Australia, we're seeing an increase in incidence of dry lightning strikes and, and so you have natural ignitions, human ignitions, against a background of, of rapidly changing climate. So the real danger here over time is that, that, that we're going to see so many additional areas of fire across the landscape that forests simply won't have enough time to recover before they get burnt again. And that's, that's some other work that we've been looking at, and that is how do we look at the risk of fire in relation to what we want from the forest. We know that if you want to grow a saw log, it takes about 80 to 100 years. If you want to grow a hollow-bearing tree, it takes about 170 years. So what's the chance of a tree growing to an age where it's a saw log or an age where it's a hollow-bearing tree, given how much fire we're having in the system? And the results are a bit grim. In fact, they're very grim. The chances of a tree growing to be an age where it's suitable for a saw log is only about one in five. So what that means is that there's an 80% chance that a, that a forest and the trees in the forest are going to burn before they, get, before they grow to become a soil log, which means that the industry has very little certainty of being able to have access to a resource to actually have soil and timber. And it's even more grim when we start to think about hollow-bearing trees and the chances of a tree reaching 170 to 180 years old uh, around about 5%. So there's a 95% chance a tree's going to get burnt before it becomes old enough to be a hollow-bearing tree. So really fire is competing heavily 
with logging for access to resource and fire is winning hands down. And, and that means that we've really got to think seriously about where are we getting our timber products from and how certain is the resource. And the answer is plantations. You can grow yeah. trees to saw up for sawn timber from plantation much more quickly and you can manage fire much more straightforwardly in plantations than you can in native forests. So to me it's pretty clear what the trajectory of the industry needs to be. Yes, yes. That, it's very harrowing to hear that, that fire is really playing such a significant role here. Um, and one of the things I wanted to highlight is the fact that native forest logging has been in the news um, very recently because of that very prominent court case in the, the federal courts that the Friends of Leadbeater's Possums and Environmental Justice Australia brought and that they actually won against Big Forests, which was focusing on these areas within Tulangi um, State Forest. And uh, it's been interesting to see that Vic Forests decided to appeal that decision. Um, so we'll have to wait and see the outcome of that. Um, but I did want to get your thoughts on um, on that decision and whether that does change anything for Tulangi State Forest um, if that is upheld and that decision, you know, is is kept in force. Does that mean something um, in terms of the science that you're doing, and does that potentially help these mammals and the hollow-bearing trees that we're looking at in these particular sites? Well, I think there's several answers to that question. The first one is is that uh, Judge Mortimer was very um, very thorough in, in the work that was done and looked in detail at the empirical science very carefully. So the, the key issue here was not so much what, what are models that people are thinking of, so uh, uh, essentially thought experiments, mm. but she was actually looking in detail at the empirical data from work that's been done carefully on the ground, such as the work that, that we've just recently described about the effect of logging and fire in the landscape. So to me, that was, that was an interesting outcome, but it wasn't a surprising outcome given when you look at where forests plan to be logged under the timber release plan from big forests, relative to what we know about the distributions of threatened vertebrates in Victoria's forests, and we see that there's a high degree of, of overlap between the two. So there's clearly a, a, a high level of conflict between logging and timber production in this case. So there's a, there's a, that's well documented. We published on that late last year. But other people have, have known that for quite some time. In, in summary, what it's saying is that the places that are targeted for logging also have very high biodiversity values. In fact, we've kind of known that going right back to the 1980s with some seminal work that was done in southern New South Wales by CSIRO, showing that you know, almost 70% of the animals are in 10% of the forest and they tend to be the most productive areas uh, where animals are, are occurring but also the places, those most productive areas are where people want to cut the forest for timber. So that's not an unexpected result. And really what's happening here now is that there's an even greater source of conflicts between logging and, and uh, conservation because we're getting to the very last parts of the forest that remain intact. So there's a very high level of conflict between the two, and that's... That's, that's really quite a critical issue here now uh, in, in terms of the last pieces of intact forest 
the forest has essentially been extensively burnt. It's been heavily overcut, and and essentially people are fighting for the last bits of the landscape. And many species will not survive, or will become even more threatened than they are with these additional disturbances in the landscape. You have to remember how much fire is occurring in large parts of Victoria, so how little intact forest is left, and the level of conflict between between adding extra disturbance to the landscape and what we're going to need to conserve viable populations of animals. Mm. So really getting to the to the point of the end of whether or not some of these species may even survive. I have real concerns about animals such as the greater glider and how quickly that's declined not only in the central highlands but in other parts of Victoria and southern New South Wales. And the federal ministers just uh, just indicated that they're going to reassess the status of that species because it's it's declined so catastrophically in so many places. Mm. David, we've just run out of time, but I'm really grateful for you explaining some of these issues and also your most recent research, which is um, really illuminating and highlighting just how important this is. And of course, so many people do know that, but it definitely brings it home even more. So thank you to you and your colleagues who are keeping on doing this really important scientific work. And um, yeah, I, I'm really grateful to you for that. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Thanks so much, David. Great to chat. You too. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.